Uh, we are in Mark chapter 3 this morning, uh, going to look at the bulk of this chapter. We find there's lots of opposition to Jesus at this point, but he continues to just stride forward and do the work that he was called to do. Uh, we want to pick it up in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. One of the ushers was telling me between services, uh, as he was here for first service, that uh, as he's been reading Mark, it's become his new favorite uh, gospel. It's interesting, too, as you, you walk with the Lord and you're growing in certain ways, it's important to keep reading the Bible over and over again because it's always fresh. There's always something there that resonates with where we are. Um, you know, wherever we are in life, there's something there, something rich, uh, something to uh, give us wisdom and guidance. Uh, verse 7 of Mark 3, <clears throat> But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard how many things he was doing, came to him. And so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had, as, as had affliction pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And so he went up on the mountain and called to him, those he himself wanted. And they came to him. And then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which translated as sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. And when his own people, that is his own family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem uh, said that he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. And so he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, uh, he cannot stand, for he has an end. And no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. And assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he had an unclean spirit. And then his brothers uh, and his mother came, Standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, 
Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And with that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your blessed, wonderful freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you're the emancipator. Lord, you look on mankind so differently than, than as we see it. Lord, you see people that are just bound up, people that are controlled by so many different things. And Lord, you have come. You've come that you might set us free. And for that, Lord, we are eternally thankful and grateful. And Father, as we take this excerpt, Lord, out of the Gospels, and we speak about it, Lord, we ask you to give insight. And we ask you to make application. Lord, uh, we know that your word's always relevant. And Lord, how as we come to it in faith, it speaks to us, speaks to our need, speaks to our situation. And Lord, as we have a reference in here to, to the devil, Lord, so many people, Lord, are bound. Lord, as we look across our culture, Lord, bound by so many different things. And Lord, we thank you that you're the one who can emancipate. Lord, you're the one that can liberate. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us, Lord, into a place of just wonderful freedom in Christ. And Lord, uh, we ask you this morning, I thank you for those that are here. And as we have gathered, Lord, to worship and fellowship together, uh, Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, you, uh, you know our past, you, you know our present, you know everything about us. And how we pray, Lord, that you can take these words, because they're words of life, they're your words, and you can apply them to us. And all of a sudden, when that happens, we're, we're aware. We're aware of our need, Lord, and we thank you that you don't just, uh, Lord, show us we have needs. Lord, uh, you're the one who can supply that need. You're the one that can meet every need in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are, you and you alone are the change agent. And so, Father, we commit, Lord, at this time to you this morning. And Lord, uh, a different group here than first service. Lord, but you know each one, Lord. You know everything about us. Lord, you know what you want to speak in, in a specific way, Father, to us today. So, Lord, may we have just open ears, open hearts. Lord, grant faith. Lord, we realize from the scriptures that faith is a gift. And even to basically believe, Lord, we need faith. And so grant that to us, dear Father. For, Lord, we praise you and thank you and ask you these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You know, as we look at this uh, point uh, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, we've now traveled uh, uh, along with him to chapter 3, uh, and we've seen how the uh, religious authorities have lost face. Uh, he has basically reproved them, uh, and in his exposure of their hypocrisy and all their goofy uh, ideas and, and burdens and things that they were laying on top of people, that he exposed it in such a beautiful, simplistic kind of way, just walking among them, speaking truth, uh, healing people, you know, touching people's lives, driving out the, you know, the evil, the enemy that was in their lives. And, um, and yet we find at this particular point, because they have lost face, um, they join with the, with the Herodians. It's a political party. And it's interesting how, you know, when it comes to Jesus, uh, those who hate him always make strange bedfellows. And... Um, 
and the Pharisees and the Herodians, this you know, political versus religious group, they hated one another, but when it came to Jesus, uh, they were ready to just sort of uh, hook up with them, and they were planning and plotting to eliminate him. Now, we're going to talk about basically the, the plague, our theme here, the plague of popularity. And of course, when it comes to this whole matter of popularity and success, it's a very deceitful thing. And we see so many people go after it. And even in the ministry of Jesus here, and one of the things that Jesus uh, interestingly does is that uh, uh, he's showing us in these particular chapters that popularity can be very dangerous. Uh, success has destroyed so many people um, because what happens is, you know, people get filled with pride uh, when things are successful in their life. I, you know, because I'm in the, the ministry of, in, the, in the business, so to speak, of preaching, uh, I've watched a lot of ministers over the years, and guys get, you know, they get uh, enamored with their own success, uh, and you get lifted up in pride, and, uh, and then you begin to just, you know, get, you can get corrupted by it. And, and the devil loves it because he destroys so many people through this whole, through the matter of success. And of course, you know, we look at America, and that's why everybody wants to come to America, because they think of success and material, uh, you know, acquisition and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that sometimes when you look at the most difficult times in your life when you're going through deprivation, um, when you're struggling to survive, you look back at those lives, those times in your life, rather, and you realize that, you know, you were, you were in the safest place because you were just struggling uh, to get along. You were trusting God. And sometimes when we come into a place, you know, of, of, uh, of affluence um, and uh, um, serious financial security, sometimes we, can, we don't realize that we can be in a very dangerous place because, you know, our, 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 our nation, people think that so often money is going to just solve every problem. But the fact of the matter is money oftentimes creates a whole lot of problems. I've seen people who uh, were a family and loved one another, and then all of a sudden there's an inheritance. And <laughs> it is amazing, uh, the, you know, the opposition and the hatred uh, that can come out when it comes to this whole matter of money and success and popularity and those kinds of things. And so we can see at this particular point, tens of thousands of people are coming to Jesus. The ministry has you know, become very popular. And Jesus is telling us, we saw last week, he's telling people, you know, just downplay that. You know, just go to the priest and, and declare, you know, uh, give an offering, you know, for, you know, for your healing or whatever the case may be, uh, that sort of thing. And so Jesus realizes a great danger in that. And so we see uh, that he's become very popular in many different places. Uh, verse 7, a great multitude following him. Uh, verses uh, 8, uh, we have uh, people coming from, from other countries. Edom, that's Idumea. Uh, beyond the Jordan, uh, the, the area of Decapolis, which would actually be the, the, the nation of Jordan today. Tyre and Sodom and Lebanon. Uh, because they had heard of all the things that Jesus had done. And of course, these people were in tremendous need. I think a lot of times, even ourselves, it's our need. Something takes place in our life. Maybe, uh, you know, we get a, uh, uh, a health report, a very bad health report, a diagnosis from the doctor. And he tells us, you know, maybe uh, we've got a, um, um, a terminal condition or we've got so long to live. And, or, or perhaps the news comes to somebody that, uh, you know, from their spouse that there's going to be a divorce that takes place. Or we hear about, a, you know, one of our one of our loved ones, our children, you know, maybe caught up in opioid usage and those kind of things. And a lot of times it's the need, you know, in our lives that brings us, you know, to Jesus. And I've seen over the years so many people because of these needs, and they're legitimate needs, 
Uh, and, and you find, interestingly, oftentimes the Lord reaches out to touch, you know, our lives, you know, in that place of our neediness. But what is important to see here is the priority in the, in the ministry of Jesus is to speak truth even more so than perform miracles. He did miracles. There was no doubt about that. And in a sense, they just sort of, they vindicated what he had to say. But he was always about truth because, you know, the Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. I've seen many people, as you know, as a pastor and uh, for, I was uh, in a ministry one time and for pretty much 11 years uh, there, uh, I was in counseling, doing a lot of counseling, personal counseling, marital counseling, all that sort of thing. And I see people so often, time after time, come with legitimate needs and situations and I've watched God fix it. I watch God's intervention in, the, in, in their particular situation. But what happens is after the thing is fixed, after God does, you know, that wonderful thing in their life that they needed him to do, they just go off. And the thing about truth is truth will, you know, uh, that's why it's important to realize that, you know, you don't want to just, you know, uh, uh, Christianity is more than just some experience meeting. Okay, it's the truth of God getting hold of your heart and hold of your life and changing you. And Jesus said that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, but also, too, the truth will keep you free. That's why we need to be continually, you know, students of the Bible, reading the Bible, in Bible studies. You know, when we meet together, having conversations that are, you know, relevant, you know, to Scripture uh, and, and so forth. Um, so, again, here, the priority is the Word of God. The priority is teaching. People were coming for, they were coming for a free meal. You know, can you imagine when... Uh, uh, you know, people heard, yeah, well, you know, he just started feeding people, thousands of people. And, and it seemed to start with this little boy's lunch. I imagine there's a lot of people just came to see. They just came to see. I, I want to see a miracle. And Jesus, one of the things that he wanted to do was to stop that kind of a circus kind of atmosphere because he wanted people coming out of a genuine desire to hear what he had to say because he knew that the, when the truth gets into the soul, it changes the life. Uh, many people have received miracles, uh, answers to miracle, mir miraculous answers to prayer, but yet they've walked away from Jesus. And, and you can have that, but that's all you may get. We want something more. We want a relationship with him. And that relationship is a relationship that's based upon, you know, upon truth and upon the word of God. So again, we need to be students. And again, I think, you know, when you think about this here, many people come and just, this is some, it's, been, it's been that way throughout history. Uh, you know, many people just coming, thinking that perhaps maybe for different reasons, for different motives. There's a great example of it in the Bible, in John chapter 6. And you know, in John chapter 6, it's the great chapter on the bread of life. It's a very long chapter. And um, Jesus performs a miracle. He feeds thousands of people. And it said, but it said later on in verse 60, it said that Jesus, be, Jesus gave a difficult teaching. Uh, and, and, it, and there's no doubt about it that it was purposeful. You know, when God says things in a certain way, uh, he, he's, got a, he's got a goal, he's got an aim, he's got a purpose or something he wants to do. And sometimes, you know, wh when it comes to Jesus speaking, uh, oftentimes we misunderstand him. Um, sometimes we have a certain, you know, God oftentimes speaks to us and it's out of the box, you know. Uh, you know, we, we, we have a certain kind of viewpoint or perspective and understanding about who God is. And, and oftentimes that has to change. He wants to expand it. He wants to give us a, he wants to deepen it, your understanding of him. So be careful that you don't, in your relationship with the Lord, you just come into this kind of a plateau. And, and you, you find that, so the Lord is speaking here in John chapter 6, verse 60, and it says he says something that's very difficult for them to understand. 
And what it was, he, he was speaking about receiving him into the life. But the way he put it, and he, he put it specifically, knowing that they were Jews, that they were going to object to what he had to say. Because with Jews, with Jews, any, you could not partake of blood. That was a big issue. And he said this to them. And he knew that they were going to struggle with it. He said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what he was speaking about, just simply open, opening up our lives and receiving him into our life. And, and, and there's another point here with that too, that God will say to you and I things that perhaps maybe they're an affront to us. They may offend us in some kind of way. And, and in verse 60 of John 6, it says this about them. They're disciples. They're not just off-the-cuff guys that you know, showed up to find a miracle. These were disciples. But, but six verses later, it says that these disciples, they turned away and they walked with them no longer. In other words, there was something that they simply could not digest. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't wrap their brain around it. And Jesus said it specifically like that. And I think that he was testing them, you know, were they going to continue to walk with him? And I think there's a lot of people in our world like that. Something happens in your life. Something takes place and you, you, can't, you can't reconcile with the fact that God loves you. You're, you're a child of God. You believe that he, his, his, his heart toward you was only good. But then something happens, something negative happens, something hurtful happens. And you're offended. And it's like you close the Bible. You're not going to church anymore. You know, forget this God chapter in my life kind of a thing. A lot of people go through that. Be, be very careful. Because the Lord's going to allow things to take place. We're going to have trials. We're going to, have, we're going to experience suffering. Um, there was an announcement of the, the, the uh, viewing today for Dave Frenchu and uh, the memorial service tomorrow morning. But uh, I, I was able to spend some time with Dave uh, over, the last, uh, over the last month. He's had ALS. And it just it was such a rapid, aggressive kind of situation. Um, I, uh, I spent some time with him. And, and he, knew, he knew he had a death warrant. He, he knew ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, is... Uh, there was an aggressive form of it, and, and it, just, it just took him so quickly. It was absolutely amazing. But, but the, the one thing I discovered is talking to Dave, um, that he was, he was not bitter at God. He was looking forward to going to heaven to be with his wife. <laughs> and he was anticipating it. And it just blessed my heart and encouraged me and even convicted me that he was totally at peace with what was taking place in his life. And, and uh, one of the brothers here and myself went to see him just about two weeks ago. We went on a Thursday. And afterwards, we came out and I said, wow, he has really digressed in just two weeks since I saw him last night. And I said, I don't know if he's going to even make Christmas. He needed to make five more days. But his spirit <laughs> was not bitter. He wasn't angry at God because things are going to happen to you and me. I think sometimes we think as a Christian, you know, that I just should be able to walk on a cloud. Nothing should ever touch me. And I won't even die. I'm just going to, you know, go to heaven on a cloud kind of a thing. And yeah, actually it's unrealistic. I mean, look at, look at Paul's life. 
Look at our Savior. You know, all the, you, do you know all the apostles were martyred? Except for John. So I think we have to be careful. We have a certain definition of Jesus. And we find that he, he speaks to us to expand that, to enlarge that, to give us a clearer understanding of really who he is and what God does within our life and within our situations. Now, looking at verse 10, he healed many that had afflictions. And I love this about the Lord that, you know, even though uh, they may be there for the wrong reason, wrong motive, he touches them and he heals them. He's compassionate. You know, I think I've, I've realized in my own life, and I think it's this way with a lot of us, a lot of times when you come to Jesus, you come to the Lord, you, you've got the wrong motive. It's like uh, one of the things that I heard is, you know, my life was so stressed out because I had PTSD from Vietnam, and uh, I just didn't know what to do. I, just, I was just kind of drinking and drinking and drinking. Uh, to just, I didn't know what it was because even back then they didn't have the acronym, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. They didn't have that. And, and when I heard the gospel call, I heard, I heard that Jesus can give you peace. And I knew, man, I knew I didn't have peace. I, I knew my life was a mess. I, I had great turmoil. And I come based on that need. But you know what? We may come based on a certain need out of a certain motivation. But he won't leave us there. He wants to change us. He wants to give us a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation of who he is and why we really need him. Now, the next scene here in verse 11, uh, and it underscores the point that he's simply making here that he doesn't want uh, advertisement uh, and help especially from the devil. And, 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 you know, sometimes, you know, the devil's so clever, he does things sometimes we don't even, we, we, we don't understand it. It's like if you ever played pool, you know, with this ace pool player, and, and he, you know, he, he, oh, he practically cleans the table, you know, on one or two, you know, one or two shots. And, uh, and you're, just trying to, you're just trying to get started. And, and our adversary, the enemy, Satan, he's so much more clever than we are. And that's why we need the Lord. Because he basically levels the playing field uh, when we have the Lord within our lives. And so here, notice what Jesus says. Now, these people that have unclean spirits, the spirit, the, the, the demonic spirit are in people, okay? And they're speaking out of that unclean spirit. And what they're saying is interesting because it's accurate and it's factual. But their motive is skewed and twisted. The unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out saying, excuse me, you are the son of God. Now notice what he does. He sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And the reason being that in the minds of people, this would associate Jesus and make connection with Satan. And it would have the appearance of evil. And later within this chapter, within the story, this group that comes down from, from Jerusalem, this religious group, this delegation that are, is basically designed, uh, hopefully, to put an end to this whole Jesus thing, they pick up on that. And that's what they try to do. They try to associate him. Remember that happened in Paul's ministry? Paul was in Philippi. You, you, I don't know if you remember the, the, the story. I think it's Acts, Acts 17, yeah. And, uh, and they're preaching. 
Paul and Silas. And this, this young damsel, she was a slave girl. She was a slave girl, and she had an ability to, read, to, to tell fortunes. And, uh, and she brought her master as much income by it. And so she, she's following Paul and Silas and saying, you know, the, you know here's are the servants of the Most High God who, who give to us the way of salvation. What she had to say was absolutely factual. But it would have connected Paul and Silas and the ministry of Christ in the minds of people with something demonic. And remember, what does Paul do? Turns around and rebukes the spirit. To come out of her. What happens there? He ends up in jail, him and Silas, because the owners of this young girl go to the authorities and they say, you know, look what, the, look what, the, look what these guys are doing. So they throw, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, um, Paul and uh, Silas in jail. And remember at midnight they're in stocks and they had been beaten, they had been whipped and they begin to sing. They begin to sing at midnight and what happens? What Was it uh, purely coincidence? It was an earthquake and the jail falls apart and uh, everybody, you know, everybody's loose and the, jail, the, the jailer, the, the, the warden there, he's going to take his life because it was always your life or you know, the prisoner if they got away. Uh, and Paul just steps up in the situation, saves the whole situation, wit witnesses, you know, to the jailer. He comes to Christ, uh, and, and they take Paul and Silas to his home, and his whole family comes to Christ. And I love it. I love it because the Lord takes a situation, you know, where, where Satan was trying to mess things up. And I think that was probably the beginning of the church, you know, there uh, in the, uh, the, 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 uh, the city there of Philippi. And so... Uh, <clears throat> Again, we find that the Lord doesn't want any help. He's got his own plan. He's got his own purpose. And we see it in these next few verses, uh, picking it up in verse 13 uh, through 19, that the Lord doesn't want uh, uh, the devil's advertisement. He has his own witnesses. And that's why we find he calls to himself um, his disciples, and he chooses out of them the 12 in verse 14, uh, that they were to be with him. Uh, to preach and to have power. And again, being with Jesus 24-7 for three years was their seminary. That was their preparation. He was going to be... And, and what I like about Jesus here, too, is their, their seminary was a practicum. I think there's a lot of guys that go through seminary and, and Bible school, and it's a lot of just... Their head is just stuffed with all kinds of things. And in the original seminary here that Jesus created for the apostles was a practical thing. He sent them out to preach, uh, and they were with him for that period of time. And then we find it, it here's the names, and we're not going to touch on every name uh, for time constraints, but here's Simon. Uh, he named him Peter. It's almost like he gave him the nickname Rocky. Hey, you're going to be Rocky. And you know why that was? When you read the Gospels, you find out Peter was impulsive. He was just a very impulsive kind of guy. You know, when I read Peter, I, I, I like him. Uh, I relate to him. You know, when you read the Bible, there's characters in there are certain facets of their character that you're going to find yourself relating to. Uh, just a very impulsive kind of guy, always sticking his foot in his mouth. Uh, but he's the leader. He's the key guy. And don't you love about Jesus? Because, you know, no doubt the Lord saw his impulsiveness, his tendencies, but he gives him the name, you know, Petros, which means I'm going to make you, I'm going to turn you into a rock. And I love that about the Lord because he sees, he sees all of our 
negative traits. He sees our failures. He knows our background. And he calls us into a relationship with him. And he makes us oftentimes the antithesis of who we are naturally. I love that about the Lord. Now here we have James and John uh, in verse 17. And he called them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. In other words, these were the guys that liked to call down fire missions on people. If somebody didn't agree with Jesus, hey, call, let's call down a lightning strike kind of a thing. And so Jesus gave them this name, Sons of Thunder, and it really speaks to their personality. But isn't it interesting that the Apostle John becomes the Apostle of Love? We get a picture of him at the Last Supper, his head on the chest of Jesus. And when you read his writings, he's always speaking about love. You know how God changes us. And, and, and James and John are actually bookends on the apostles, which is interesting. James was the first martyr of the apostles. John was the last of the apostles to die, and he wasn't martyred. So we got these two, these two brothers that were kind of bookends uh, on the, uh, in the apostolic band there. And then we have Thomas. I'm sorry, verse 18, Philip. Uh, Philip seemed to be an upbeat kind of guy. And you get that impression as you read some of the uh, exchanges between him and the other apostles and Jesus and so forth, seem to have that upbeat personality. But then you have Thomas. Thomas is kind of negative. Uh, and unfortunately, he, he's uh, um, drafted this name, Doubting Thomas. You know, poor guy. Uh, he has a, 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 a doubting situation in the Bible. He gets that and he seems to get that name. Uh, I know that won't be his name for eternity. But uh, he, sends, he tends to have a negative kind of way of viewing things. That's his personality. Uh, remember when they're, um, it's John chapter 11, and they're in Bethabara. Now, Jesus has pretty much stayed out of Judea because it's dangerous. They want to apprehend him. They're going to kill him. So a lot of his ministry took place in the Galilee, but he's in Beth Bethabara down by the Jordan uh, rift there, and that's where John was baptizing. And um, uh, he gets word from Martha and Mary that Lazarus has died. And we know the story kind of lingered for a few days. And the whole idea of going back into Judea, he says to the disciples, let's go back and wake up Lazarus. And, um, and then, he's, then he goes, and then he just says, you know, straightly, uh, Lazarus is dead. Uh, and and he's, he knows exactly what he's going to do. There's going to be a resurrection that takes place. But it's interesting, Thomas says this. And sometimes when you read these I, so many times I've read verses in the Bible, you don't always get the tone. Sometimes you just got to figure that out, or else the Holy Spirit just shows you about the tone, a certain kind of tone there. And so Jesus is talking, about, talking to the other disciples and apostles about going back um, and, uh, and ministering to Martha and Mary, and uh, they don't know it, but ra raising Lazarus from the dead. And it's interesting what Thomas says. He says, let's go back and die too. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. And it's kind of interesting because God takes all of us, the raw material, and over the process of our lives, he's transforming us. He's changing us. He's altering things. I mean, what happens initially in Christ is a forerunner, it's a harbinger of what God wants to do through the entirety of our lives. I knew when I got saved, man, I, it was a radical, radical, radical change. 
was radical from, from where I came from because probably it was so radical because I had been living in darkness, a pretty deep darkness. I don't think it's that way for everybody. It was for me. I think sometimes people, some people are living on the lighter side of darkness. But for me, for my background, man, it was like I went from night to day. I went from death to life. And man, I knew it. I knew that I knew that I knew something wonderful and radical had taken place in my life as Christ came in. Okay, let's see. Here we are. Uh, Simon the Zealot. Um, this guy was a politically motivated operative. He would be what we call today a domestic terrorist. The zealots were called dagger men. And that's the reason, the reason being for that, they would always keep a dagger under their, under their robe, and that's what they would do with their opponents. They'd slip up in a crowd and just put a dagger right up in them. This is Simon the Zealot, which is interesting because you have Matthew, who was a pawn, an, an employee of the Roman government. And these are the kind of guys that hated one another. And he brings these two guys together in close proximity to be his disciples, to be his, his, his inner circle, the apostles. And again, it's because God knows. Because we may look at it, well, you know, I got I, you know, sometimes you know, we have issues with people. And, and God may bring you into close proximity with that other person. You think, wow, why do I got to be around them? I can't stand that person. They really get under my skin. They just bother me. And, and the Lord brings all these different personalities together because he knows what he can do. He knows that he can change us. See, a lot of times we don't see the possibility, the real possibility of transformation and change because we know who we are. We know our vulnerabilities. We know our weaknesses. We know our tendencies and proclivities. I mean, we try to, we try to <laughs> clean up our lives the best we can. But at the end of the day, you can change all the external stuff, but inside, we're still the same. And that's the promise of Christ, that, that he will change us. And it, and it doesn't happen, in a sense, overnight. It's a process through life. I'm so thankful for the grace of God that has been at work within my life, and I see it in your lives too. And sometimes we get stuck. Sometimes we get, sometimes we get stuck in a place. Uh, be careful that you don't just get stuck in, in a certain kind of place where you're doubting and unbelieving. You want to continue to trust him, to, to work within your life. You know, it's like, when you look at the Bible, you see guys, God using guys in their 70s, in their 80s. Daniel probably in his 90s. He's got, he's, he's, you know, we may retire in a sense. You know, we get with, that's part of our cultural thing. We may retire. But you never retire from God in this life. The only time you retire from God is when they drop you in the, they put you down in that, that six-foot hole. But God's got a plan, a purpose, until that time happens. He's always, he'll always be forever being. And, and, I, and I tell you what, one of the things that I realized as, as a, as a, as a uh, guy of 25 years old when I came to Christ is I realized this. I, had, I, I understood I lived long enough to realize I need to change. 
And I remember thinking that. I remember thinking that before even I came to Christ. I need to change. But yet there was no wherewithal to do it. There was, there was no power. And I started reading, you know, I was into existentialism. Jean-Paul Sartre and Carl Rogers and all that sort of thing. Because I, 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 was, I was reading that stuff because I, I, I want to change. But I realized it wasn't there. But when I read this book, there was a dynamic there. Because God was honoring the things that he was proposing that are on these pages. Now here, the last guy we have here is uh, Judas Iscariot. Uh, imagine, saw incredible things. Do you realize when the, uh, in the 70s sent, were sent out and the apostles were sent out that Judas performed miracles? Do you realize that? He probably cast out demons, traitor of people that got healed. He was a part of that. He, he saw incredible things. But he, as he walked with the Lord for three years, he basically cashed out. You see, I think the problem with Judas Iscariot was that, that Jesus did not measure up to the Messiah that he wanted. See, he was looking for a political Messiah or he was looking for a Christ at his second coming, not at his first coming. Judas wanted to see the Roman yoke of oppression removed from the nation. In other words, he was really looking for a political answer. And Jesus came to provide a spiritual answer. Because politics don't save anybody. I mean, look at, the, look at what's going on, you know, in our nation today. The polarization and all those sorts of things. The only, the only, the only way that things change is when God works in hearts one by one. That's why the best thing you can do for our country is share Christ with people. And, and you know, we, uh, we're in political season again. It started again. And we're going to hear all kinds of promises. And the fact of the matter is, I've been around long enough. I think I've been through 12 presidents. And you realize they make all kinds of promises. that well intended, but they're just men. They're just men. Jesus Christ makes promises to us <laughs> that he can fulfill, that he can keep. He's able. Now here in verse 20, <clears throat> and also too, I want to reference verse 31 through 35. We're not going to go there in, one, in 31 through 35. And, and this is when Jesus' family shows up and he's teaching and they're on the periphery of the crowd. And they're just, you know, they're basically, uh, they're wanting him to come. They think, they think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. Remember they said that about Paul? Has anybody ever said that about you when you really get fired up for Christ? That's a good thing to have said about you. Not that you want to be some weird wacko. I don't think we should always be a pain in somebody's neck. But people may say, hey, you've really gone over the edge. You know, you've taken this, taken this religious thing a little, a little too far, a little too seriously. I can't wait till you get through your religious chapter of your life. People will say things to you like that. And you know what? I've been with Jesus now for 44 years, and I'll tell you what, I never want to get over it. It's such a wonderful experience to know him, the true and the living God. So anyway, but when his own people heard about this, they went out, I'm talking, speaking here from verse 21, they went out to lay hold of him, and they said, he is out of his mind. And again, this is his mother, this is his brother, this is his family. These are people that basically knew him. 
And you know that God, God knows and the devil knows how much we love our families. But be very careful. Because sometimes they can influence you and turn you from the path that God has for you as a believer. I've seen it happen too many times. We love our families. And they love us. But sometimes when God is at work within your life and giving you a personal directive, and it may rub somebody the wrong way, and he's calling you to be obedient to that, you need to do it. And I know how we hate to offend people. I, I, I hate to do that. I don't like offending people. I don't like saying certain things. But sometimes our life may, the decisions that we make in obedience to God, people can misinterpret that, especially our loved ones. They love us dearly. And, and we need to, you know, the, the fact is when Christ comes into our life, in a sense, he puts us into another family, doesn't he? And yet our hearts, we love our, you know, we love our nuclear family, our natural family, so very, very much. But we have to be very careful that relative to things that are influencing, influencing us from an attitude of unbelief and not understanding what God's will is. That if he tells us to do something, we need to do it. And I'm not talking about some far out crazy thing. If maybe the Lord is speaking to you about doing something that's kind of out of your wheelhouse, seems like out of the box for you, and maybe you're struggling with that, get spiritual counsel. Come to the leadership. But I think when it comes to important things like that, that when the Lord speaks to us, he oftentimes speaks to us through the Bible, not, not just some crazy whim. But again, I think it becomes a challenge for us to have to do something that we know that maybe somebody else may not like. For us, for Margie and I, both of us, we, we came from very strong Catholic families. And, uh, and I remember it was a challenge when we went home to Philadelphia to speak to our parents about our decision for Christ. And, and even though, uh, you know, they, my family was not real, I mean, would diehard Catholics, they're not going to change. It's, it's like a political party. We come a long line like from 1900, <laughs> from that kind of a background. And um, so to tell them that we came to Christ was very offensive to them. Even Margie, Margie's parents were very strong uh, Catholics, and it was very difficult for them. But you know, eventually they came to see after years. It took years. They said, we see that you're living right in other words, they saw the consistency of that decision to follow Jesus. Because here's the thing about, about sharing Christ. You know, people will listen to us. They'll, they'll give us their ear. But they're going to watch us to see if there's any reality or consistency to our Christianity. And that's the greatest witness. That's the greatest witness when they say, wow, there's something so consistent and right about your life. I want your God in my life. 
That, can, that happens so often. Now, the big guns come from Jerusalem in verse 22. And we see this scenario through verse 30. This is the official delegation that has come to discredit Christ. Now, without any honest investigation, look at verse 22. They say, hey, he has Beelzebub. That's, That's Satan, the Lord of the flies. And by the ruler of demons, he cast out demons. And again, this would be the worst kind of accusation. Because they're not just, in a sense, blaspheming against the man. They're blaspheming God. God come in the flesh. And you know, sometimes, too, these were the smart guys. Do you ever notice sometimes when there's the real smart guys in the room, they try to commandeer the conversation? And they can even say, smart guys a lot of times say ridiculous, stupid things. But nobody challenges it because, well, they're the smart guys. They must know everything. And I think that was the case here. These were the religious official guys from Jerusalem. You don't even challenge them in any kind of way. They'll excommunicate you. It was nonsense. And Jesus says in verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, that doesn't doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Jesus goes on to say here in verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Just common sense, irrefutable logic. An army doesn't fight itself. (laughs) A kingdom to stand has to be unified. And I can't help but when I look at verse 25, I think of our own nation. If a house is divided against itself, that that house cannot stand. The best thing we can do for our nation is pray for it. The answer, now, I'm very careful. We're very civic-minded here. Anytime election time comes, we encourage everybody to vote. We don't tell you who to vote for. That's your business. But if you want to ask me privately, I'll tell you. (laughs) I'll, I'll just give you my opinion. And we pray. We pray for the president for the administration, for the Congress, for the Senate, for the Supreme Court. We even pray for that guy down in Albany. (laughs) And we should do that. It's important to do that. But you know something? It isn't a political answer. That's That's why politics is messianic. It's always been messianic. Somebody comes along and they get all kinds of claims and so forth, and people... And because, because the way God's created us, it's like we're always looking for this leader. It's just the way God's created us. But it's only until Christ steps into that place can we understand pol- politics you know, and put it in its right place, in its right perspective. That's why there's such political angst and polarization in, in, in politics today. If you don't know Christ, that's your answer. And I'm all for good politics and good politicians. I think it's important, the laws and the policies that we hold and maintain. They're very important. They affect millions of people. But at the end of the day, they're not redemptive. Amen? 
There's only one regenerating force and truth, and that's the gospel. And you know, at my age, it's very difficult to see what's happened in our nation, to just watch it, to watch the decline, the moral implosion, to watch all that. It's very difficult. But here's the thing we need to remember. We have another king. There's another kingdom coming. And it may be here sooner than we think. And that's what we need to be as heralds for that kingdom. Because when God changes one heart at a time, he not only makes us better citizens for this nation, but also, too, he prepares us for that heavenly, eternal kingdom that's to come. How are we doing here on time? Okay. Jesus says in verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house. Now, this would be not only a, 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 an important truth for spiritual warfare, but it's prophetic of what he would do. The strong man here is the devil. The strong man here is Satan and how he captivates and how he c- controls people. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. And see, Jesus Christ has done that at the cross. He's done it at the cross. I want to read to you a few verses here. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Speaking of Christ, it says, He wiped out the handwriting of requirements, the things that condemned us, the charges against us. Having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. Anytime there's a reference in the Bible to principalities and powers, it's a reference to satanic, supernatural, satanic, demonic agencies. And notice what it says here. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In other words, on the cross, he made a spectacle. You know, it's interesting because no doubt, Satan energized the men, certain men, to crucify Christ. And no doubt, Satan is, 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 is licking his chops, rubbing his hands, thinking that, man, I finally put him on the cross. We're done with him. Little did he know that was the triumph. That was his own defeat because he was dying to purchase humanity. He was paying our price, paying the bride price, actually. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, you can write that down, that through death, Jesus, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those uh, through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. John 1, 3, 8, 9. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or came that he might destroy the works of the devil. Uh, Luke 10, 17 through 20. Jesus said to the disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give to you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, speaking there prophetically. John says to us in, in 1 John 4.4, 4, you, are, you, you, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And that's why we pray. We pray against the enemy. And I like what Michael says, don't ever rebuke the, the devil in your name. We do it in Christ's name. 
His name has power. And we pray for those that, you know, you know John tells us in his little epistle there that, that the world is under his influence, Satan's influence. It doesn't mean people are possessed, but to differing degrees, people are influenced by darkness, by the prince of this world, by Satan. I look back at my own life, yeah, sure I was. And, and people that are, I think, under that influence don't even realize it. But Jesus Christ comes, and with his light, he reveals to us our need. That's why when Christ comes along, and, and as he was doing here, at, in light, he exposes things. And he does that in a personal way in each one of our lives, where we realize there are things in our lives that are not pleasing to God. But he doesn't leave us there. He says, if you trust me, if you believe me, if you look to me, I'll bring that necessary change within your life and within your particular situation. And assuredly, I say to you, and here's the good news, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they may utter. Man, I, I can't tell you how many times I cursed the name of Jesus before I came to Christ. When I got out of the service, man, I had a mouth like you would not believe. I remember Margie one time, my wife, saying, you have to stop talking like that. And I didn't even realize it. I didn't even realize that that part of my, that part of my life was particularly out of control. I didn't even realize what I was saying, how filthy it had become. But all sin can be forgiven. What an incredible thing. What grace. Even though I blasphemed the very name of the one who wanted to save me and died for me. Here's the bad news. Verse 29. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. This is one of the most fearful Verses in the Bible. Because people are concerned, I want to do that. I don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? What exactly is that? Well, I think first and foremost is this. Because I think it can be done in two different ways. First of all, I think it's to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit when he comes to us and speaking about Jesus. Because you can't get saved. If you don't have Jesus, there's no other way of salvation. There's no other way. And, and that's how we get saved. And now, it may be a person that comes and speaks to us and gives us the gospel, but the Holy Spirit's taking those words and he's speaking to our heart, speaking into our life. Saying, you need this, you need this. If a person rejects that, they've got nothing. What I've always wondered about is the poor soul that has been witnessed to and has an understanding of, of the gospel that they need to get saved, but they keep putting it off and keep putting it off, but they enter into eternity before they make that decision. And to have to live with that thought for eternity, that I was so close, my wife or my husband or my parents kept telling me I needed Jesus. It was right there. I decided I was going to do it, but I just kept putting it off and putting it off. Uh, what a horrible thing. 
There's no salvation any other way. If there was, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. We could just be really good people. But the problem is we can't. He makes us righteous. He makes us acceptable. Then the second one is this here. <clears throat> and that's the case here with these guys. They attribute the activity and the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. In other words, here was God in the flesh performing miracles. Holy Spirit was like having a heyday. People are getting healed. People are getting resurrected from the grave. Lives are being changed. God was working, and they're, and these are the religious people, okay? The, these are the religious people that are applying this awesome work of God to the devil. Isn't that sad? I think that I think sometimes too. I don't think it's a matter of heaven and hell, but sometimes I've seen the different camps in Christianity. You got extremes. You got extremes in Christianity, just like you know in life itself. And I've seen sometimes, you know, the, the perhaps the ultra conservative Christians over here, super conservative, ultra conservative. And they look at perhaps maybe the, the charismatic camp over here. And they can't understand, you know, some of the miraculous things that may be taking place. Or they say, and I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this more than once, that tongues is the work of the devil. Then that's dangerous. That, that's very, very dangerous. I understand why they say that. Because in this camp over here, it's abused. But that's a dangerous thing to say. And I look at sometimes God working in certain kind of ways, and I would say, you know, I wouldn't do it that way. We wouldn't do it that way in our church. But does that mean it's a devil? You better be, you better be very careful about that. We better be very, very careful. Sometimes God works in ways that maybe we wouldn't do it that way. That's maybe out of our personality type. But if it's God, if it is God working, I think we need to find evidence of that in the Scripture. Amen. Always going back to the Bible. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. And uh, as we're talking here about the Holy Spirit this morning, well, it's this afternoon. <laughs> you know, the Bible encourages us to be filled with God's Spirit. We need it. We get empty too quickly, too easily. Life just tends to empty us out. And if you want a fresh touch, a fresh filling, or if in some new fresh way for you, you just want to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit. I want to have you stand, but not yet. And secondly, if you want to pray for somebody that you know, that you love, and their life is a mess, and they may believe, they may just simply be believing a lie from the devil. Their life may be just sort of bound up. I want you to stand for them too because we want to pray for them. 
So I want to have you stand up right now, either one of those things. Dear Father, we thank you that we can come to you. That you're, God, you're a God who's near and at hand. You're not afar off. And so often, Lord, we, we get so emptied out. Lord, run down, beat up by the circumstances of life. And Lord, we need that fresh full, fullness in our life. We need, we need that which you give. And I pray, Father, for each one of us here this morning. They need that fresh touch. They need perhaps that fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit. Lord, uh, this world is always trying to fill us. One way or the other, Lord. But we realize, Lord, the true filling that makes a great difference, Lord, is your Spirit. So I pray, Father, you'd send your Holy Spirit in a fresh way into our midst, Lord, this day. And Father, for those that we know and love, maybe bound by the devil, just, Lord, because they've believed the wrong thing, Lord, living in the wrong way, and not realizing how precarious their life is. Lord, many of us, Lord, before that point in time came where we realized we needed you, we didn't think we needed you. But we thought everything's kind of okay. But Lord, it's not. And there's so many, Lord, that we know and that we love. We're concerned about them, Lord. And we ask you that by your Spirit, you'd reach down, Lord, and reveal yourself to them. And deliver them, Lord, from any darkness, any hold upon their mind, upon their thinking. Lord, whoever they are, we bring them before you, Lord. And we just stand in their place and ask you to bless them, to touch them, and to work and reveal yourself. For Lord, we thank you that our only true freedom is in knowing and walking with you. So how I pray, Father, you would bless these here, your people. Lord, as we go, go with us, fill us, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.